This is an ABC podcast. that this episode of The Minefield will be the episode that finally brings the whole thing undone because the very logic of the show just implodes upon itself and we disappear into a puff of contradiction. Because it seems to me that the whole premise upon which this show is based is about to be challenged. And when you do that, well, the house divided against itself isn't a good house. Or this, I'm not sure how that saying goes exactly. Anyway, welcome to the minefield. Walid Ali is my name as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We were just off air debating whether or not he actually was my co-host and what the meaning of all that was. I'll leave it to Scott to decide whether that remains an off-air conversation or he wants to pick it up on air. Hello, Scott. You're getting very existential this early in the discussion. I mean, <laughs> what you're laying out almost sounds like a Doctor mm. Who episode where we do something catastrophic. That means yep. that our secure place within the space-time continuum suddenly, uh, suddenly breaks or folds it upon itself, and we simply no longer, not only no longer exist, but no one even has the memory of us existing. If we never existed. Yeah. Look, yeah. in fact, I would say that not only is your idea that we may well be unraveling the very conditions of possibility of a show like this. I would go so far as to suggest that if this conversation goes the way that I think it's going to go or where that I hope it's going, I don't have any agenda here, but I have ideas. I, I think that maybe our show demonstrates the way that this particular topic in fact does work. Um, so we're talking about persuasion. We're talking about persuasion. And I'm, I find that the issue of persuasion the fact of it, the dynamic of it, endlessly fascinating. Because I think in many respects, we've come to think of persuasion almost something more like religious conversion, where what persuasion does is it takes someone who is in a condition of what one party believes to be error and leads them across a kind of rhetorical or logical or philosophical or moral bridge, whereby they arrive at another position that one or now, if, if persuasion is possible, both parties agree is in a position of truth. Um, my sense is that very, very little persuasion is in fact like that. That kind of conversion from being in one state to another state. In fact, I suspect that the whole dynamics of persuasion are something more like enabling somebody to gradually move from a position to which they are either strongly or less strongly devoted and giving them a number of options whereby they can save face, they can be reassured of their inner integrity of their character, where they don't have to admit some sort of massive intellectual, epistemological, moral wrongdoing, but can gradually, slowly move from one position to another without that movement from one position to another ever being necessarily publicly acknowledged. And I think one of the proofs of the fact that I think that persuasion, most persuasion is probably like that, is the fact that those big examples where another form of persuasion has taken place, namely that what I laid out before is something more resembling religious conversion, that itself ends up in a time like ours being commodified. I was once a white supremacist. 
and now I'm a multicultural cosmopolitan. I was once this. Now let me tell you the story on my TED Talk, or let me tell you the story at this writer's festival, or let me tell you the story of my memoirs, how I went so the from- the prized convert. The prized convert who is then able to then throw open the curtains and show everything that went on behind the scenes in their previously discredited institution or set of- so I, right. Thereby confirming the prejudices of their audience and making persuasion of that audience less possible. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. right. So, I mean, that's the way that I think- persuasion doesn't work. And I think the exceptions to the rule kind of prove the rule. But what's sort of interesting to me, Waleed, is, and I, I realize I'm maybe shifting course a little bit here, but I, I, I have this kind of this, this image or this dream that one day we're going to do a series about philosophical prophecies. So prophecies by really smart people that not only were wrong, but could not have been more wrong. <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, the, yeah. the one that immediately comes to mind is John Maynard Keynes' economic possibilities of our grandchildren that somehow through the miracle of what he called compound interest, the miracle of compound interest, we would end up in a position where, uh, where income is more or less secured for all people. Therefore, we don't have to work any more than three days a week and we'll be able to give our time and attention to far more noble. Oh, is, is that more wrong than Marx? <laughs> there's, there's another one. I hope somebody's keeping a list. Someplace. Basically, anyone that people quote a lot. It's yeah, true. It's, true. it's true. And another one of my favorite philosophical prophecies was John Stuart Mill's faith that what the newspaper was going to do is to incline the hearts of citizens one towards another. So they find in one another, despite their divergent interests, a kind of deeper common humanity and new forms of robust organic consensus would spring up as the result of the printing of newspapers. I, I love that one. I love oh, that I don't one. know that that's entirely untrue. Well, five years after he wrote it, even Dostoevsky devoted an entire chapter of the Brothers Karamazov to its refutation. So I think that even, even at the time, there was something yeah, okay. wonderful, utopian, but also really suspicious about the whole sure. idea. Sure. Okay. But if, if you're going to cite a refutation as evidence of the falsity of something, then nothing's true. No, I'm not citing I mean, a refutation every, as been... evidence of the falsity, but I think okay. all evidence to the contrary is my... I don't know. Okay, look, this is now a different show, so I don't want to go too far down this track. But I would have thought that the breakup or the breakdown of our media structure and the newspaper, especially in the like in favour of this sort of more atomized, chaotic, swarm-like modes of communication, yeah. best exemplified in social media, actually show the truth of the statement of that newspapers. There you go. Well, see, that's then what we would have to do: is philosophical prophecies that seem wrong. Oh my God, you've got a whole series. This oh, is I love this. I love this. This is great. And see, now mm. now we're also putting ourselves in a position where the audience has to hold us to it. You said you were going to do a series on, you know, this is this is how things work. Um, yes, that, that is the habit of our audience, isn't it? The reason Just I'm getting in touch, demanding that we fulfill <laughs> The reason I'm bringing that... up philosophical prophecies, though, is I think one of the greatest, which has actually proven to be true, but seems almost entirely not, is Hannah Arendt's prophecy at the beginning of the human condition, where she holds out the fear of an imminent future augured by the launch of Sputnik uh, into the orbit in 1957, a future in which scientific technological language, communication essentially by, by signals, symbols, the reduction of, of all limitations of the human condition to technical problems that can be solved through enough scientific know-how 
that that would be the future of human communication and that the world would come in which what she calls speech would have lost all of its power. I mean, what she means by speech there is deliberation. Uh, the conditions of democratic society whereby people by speaking together make meaning of a common world and by the making meaning of a common world can then act in a world that they have in common for some kind of common good. You'd have to say, though, that in many respects, I think many people, especially in the time of a pandemic, would wish that a lot more communication were more scientific and technically grounded and were simply a lot less opinionated. What we've seen instead, and maybe this is proof of Hannah Arendt's prophecy, is that opinion has proliferated. Words have lost their power, yes, but they've adopted, they've taken on for themselves a different kind of power. That might be the power of commodity. That might be the power of political messaging and signaling. That might be the power of commodified opinion as such, or it might simply be the proliferation of words as mere chatter. However you describe it, it seems to me that we found ourselves in a position where I think a good number of people would be entirely correct to say that persuasion, if it ever was possible, and there are some philosophers that doubt that it ever was, that persuasion, even if it was possible, now no longer is. And all that there is is the kind of interplay, the alternation, the vacillation back and forth of positions of power. Hence, words are powerful as messages, but not as forms of deliberative, moral, philosophical, epistemological communication. And therefore that we're in a position where we really can't hope that words can bring people from one position to another, but rather that words can affect a kind of condition of mutual intimidation, whereby the proliferation of those words, people are kind of dragooned into positions of conformity. On all fronts, what this means, I think, is that things aren't necessarily looking good for persuasion, if we think of persuasion as conversion, as bringing people from one position to another through a process of deliberation, convincing, rhetorical uh, power. Either way, what do we make of persuasion? Is it possible? Is it desirable? Are we in a time in which words have, in fact, lost their deliberative power? And here I was worrying that you would unravel the premise of the entire show, when actually what you've just done is state the argument we've more or less been making back and forth for about 350 shows, <laughs> which is that persuasion might be a great thing, but we're destroying almost systematically the conditions that make yeah, it possible. Okay. Well, in that case, fine. This is going to be a great show. But here's what I would say is interesting about the way you put it is I wonder if you have a disproportionate focus on words here. Mm, I think that's right. Who... Uh, from where do you get this assumption, at least as I perceive it being inherent in what you said, that words are the tools of persuasion, mm. almost, if not it, truly to the exclusion of everything else? So you, your analysis there focuses on the power of words, whether they've lost their power to persuade and so on and so forth. But has persuasion ever truly been um, a purely verbal process mm. or a purely rational process? Mm. Or, no. That's right. Surely not. I mean, one of, one of the key dimensions of persuasion, it seems to me, whether we want to admit it or not, has always been uh, the presence and the relevance of emotion and other things that can't really be expressed in words. You know, things 
like empathy or solidarity or imagination or what it's it's the reason that well to pick an example that is current in the moment it's the reason that anti-vax uh worldviews and anti-vax ideology if that's an appropriate term i'm not sure but um is just about impossible to shift through argumentation but it does shift where one's own child gets whooping cough or something mm. right because a truth is being communicated in a non-verbal way there. So I, I'm sort of attracted to what you're offering, but I, I just don't know how much I want to commit to it because I, I'm a bit worried we'll end up having quite a partial conversation that is really focusing on a very important phenomenon, which is the idea that no one really takes anyone and anyone's words at face value anymore. Words are just kind of now passed for their symbolic content that allows us to assign people to, you know, various sides, frequently two sides of a particular issue, debate or political culture. Mm. But we don't actually listen to each other and then engage the meaning of the words that are being presented to us. So I agree that's a phenomenon, but I wonder if that's enough to help us make some claim about persuasion. The, the, the other bit I find I interesting is... Um, you were uh, you raised in my mind this question of what counts as persuasion. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's sort of only this is just so good, Waleed. This is ticking all the boxes. This is wonderful. Oh, good. Go, go please. Played right into your hands. Yes, you have. Um, so, when we talk about persuasion, I sort of only just realised, but we are kind of imagining a world whereby um, reason plays a significant role. But let's say you change your political orientation because, I don't know, someone that you really just doesn't, don't like keeps trying to push you in a particular direction and so you manifest the opposite. Mm. And you're really responding out of, I don't know if it's spite or, or, or what it is. Hatred's probably too strong a word, but you know what I mean. It's just defiance. a gut reaction. Defiance. Yeah, maybe yeah. defiance is yeah. a good word. Are you persuaded? Would we call that persuasion or would we say that that's change without persuasion? Mm. Um, and the more I think about it, and to be fair, I've been thinking about it for roughly 15 minutes, but the more I think about it, the more I wonder whether or not the distinctions we might draw there are more illusory than we admit. So... You know, if we say, well, no, that doesn't count as persuasion because you're not changing your mind, you're just following your gut. Like you're just kind of following a particular feeling, perhaps even a base feeling. Um, so that's not persuasion. Well, yeah, but if you factor in what I just said before about the importance of emotion in persuasion, then how different is it really? So I don't know. They, these are the sort of this is great. ambiguities, I guess, that's around the concept for me. All right. Well, look, before we bring in our guest, let's try to lay out or clarify a little bit of the groundwork. Let's say, and let's make the difference, the, the, the clear distinction between how people change their minds, which itself mm -hmm. is a really interesting topic, versus yep. the, let's call it the scene of persuasion where there are at least two people involved. One person goes from a particular position to being convinced by or to moving their orientation, moral, political, epistemological, whatever, to another position. So let, let's just say this isn't simply 
changing one's mind, but there is something involving uh, the encounter of one person with another involved. So let's let's say that that's sorry, part of. Okay, sorry, can I just ask when yeah. you say a scene though? You, are you really just talking about a, a relationship over time? Well, see, okay, there's our second clarification. One of the things that's been so interesting for me is that when we think about persuasion debate or non-persuasion, I think what most often comes to mind is something like Q&A, where you have people, different positions, sitting on a panel, having it out over a particular topic. Each member of that panel is posturing, uh, is, is selling or hawking their wares to their tribes of the already convinced. Uh, the point is upholding the standard, the banner for their particular side. And the last thing that yep. you would expect in that kind of quote unquote scene of persuasion is for one of the members of that panel to, oh, wow. Actually change their mind. Yep, yep. You, you got me there. Uh, or, yep. or, or to say, yes, where, where can I sign? Um, I think the yep. way that this usually works, and, and here's what's so interesting to me. I've noticed, so this is our, is this our seventh year of doing this show? Something like that. Yeah, I think it is. The, the number of times that I'm convinced that I haven't persuaded you of anything, and yet over the course of the last seven years, certain things have become part of your vocabulary in things that you say and things that you write. And I think, hmm, that's really interesting to me. But I'll bet you can't identify a particular moment where, yep, Scott really convinced me of that, just to, just to take an example. Uh, yep. an, another example, I think, that was pointed out to me by Hugh Brakey, one of, the, one of our friends on this show, is that very frequently when there is a clash between two people, in other words, the opposite of a scene of persuasion, sometimes there is something in that moment of, let's call it moral encounter between two persons that might leave one of them entirely unpersuaded, entirely unmoved. And yet, as a result of that encounter, there are a number of secret concessions that may well have taken place in the heart or the mind, the soul of one of the members in that encounter. So in order to save face, they can't say, you've persuaded me, but there is a certain inclination of one person towards the other that may well lead in a very gradual process towards, uh, towards one of them kind of moving a little bit closer towards the other. Now, you would have to say, Willie, wouldn't you? It's not just words doing the job there. Proximity is important. Time is important. Tact, dear God, tact, Ooh. gentleness, uh, um, uh, allowing someone At to times, be... At times, not yes, always. Not, not, uh, not always, but, but I cannot think of a good argument that's been won without gentleness. I'm using that word instead of respect. Gentleness is involved. Uh, uh, allowing the other person to maintain, to hold on to their dignity in the course yes. of yep. the conversation. All of these things, I think you're right. These are non-verbal in the strict sense, and yet they are communicative. They are an essential part of the conditions within which certain forms of persuasion can in fact take place. I guess my question is, are they necessary conditions within which persuasion can take place? Which is to say, without a number of those non-verbal cues, those forms of communication, those forms of, of, of human tenderness and tact, is persuasion in fact not possible? Does persuasion, the attempt to persuade, tip over into something that looks a lot more like rhetorical violence, for instance? You're, you're asking for my response? 
you can respond if you want, but I'm saying that's <laughs> that, that I think is part of the a big part of the conversation going in. Oh yes, yeah, I think that's right. But this is why it, I think it ends up taking us back to relatively familiar territory, doesn't it? Um, because one of, I mean, you mentioned the Q and A example, um, or you know, we've, this comes up often in our conversations that skirt social media. Um, one of the things these forums do is they take away the ability to change your position or even just amend your position. Mm, Isn't that the same thing exactly? Any concession becomes a kind of display of weakness to one's tribe. Yeah. So the way I've put this in the past, I think, is these are spaces of performance. And once you're in a performance mode of existence, you can't be persuaded because no one ever walks out onto a stage hoping that they do badly so that they may learn from something. You don't, you know, a a soprano doesn't hope that their voice will crack so that they can learn more about how to control their voice. Those things are meant to happen away from performance in rehearsal or in lessons or whatever so that when the performance comes, they can merely show show purely a finished product that is as close to perfect as they can muster, Mm. right? Um, So no one can be persuaded while they are performing is... If I were to reduce it to a principle, that's probably it. In political Um, terms, we would say that this is spin. And I think one of the things that social media has in fact then done is created the conditions for the spinification of everything. So virtually everything then becomes something that has to be that finished, immutable, unmovable, unchangeable product. Especially because it's written down. That's right. Um, And because it's written in such short form that you can't, express nuance and therefore you can't express qualifications very easily and it becomes difficult to do. All right. I'm I'm glad we preserved the show at the very least. Can I also say something that's normally your domain? I'm very excited about our guest. It's every now and again, you give me a present (laughs) and I reckon you've done it. You've given me a present today. Was that the motivation or is this just happenstance? Well, nothing's happenstance. Uh, this was, this was. <laughs> Nothing is happenstance. Let's, let's, let's call it a secondary gain, shall we? Oh I'm, I'm, I'm just as happy about having our, our guest, but I know the particular affection that you have for her. So All right. there we Excellent. go. All right. Well, if, uh, if you just joined us, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like. So uh, you can do that on the ABC Listen app or you can follow The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest is Agnes Callard. She's Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Chicago. She is, uh, I'm not, Agnes, I don't think we can call you an ancient ethicist without saying bad things or bad suggestions about your age. I don't think we want to do that, but I think we can say a scholar who has done remarkable work concerning the pertinence of ancient ethics. She is a, not only a philosopher, but a public philosopher, which means she writes philosophy for not just people who are schooled in the discipline of philosophy. She's also a writer that Waleed and I both greatly admire and love. Agnes, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. It's my pleasure. So, so let's, let's begin with the opportunity for you to clear the stage of maybe some of the rubble or, or unnecessary props that you feel we might have introduced. To what extent is persuasion essential to the task of philosophy? 
I think persuasion is incompatible with the task of philosophy. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Okay. <laughs> uh, I think the most important question about persuasion you guys didn't ask, is persuasion good? Right. That is before we decide how we can bring it about and whether or not our society has arranged itself in such a way to make it impossible, whatever we'd first want to know. Right. The first question about anything is, is it good? Um, and I think that, you know, one of you brought up the idea that there's changes of mind and we don't call them all persuasion. Right. Uh, and in fact, anytime two people have a conversation, one of them might come around to the view of the other. Right. But you never know who's going to come around to whose view. And I think we use the name of persuasion um, to talk about the power that people have to be the throw weight in those exchanges, that is, to be the one who orchestrates the changes of mind in others, right? So persuasion is like a power or like, a you know, he's a persuasive guy or, right? And so it's, it's being the throw weight of those sorts of exchanges. Um, you drew a distinction between sort of like maybe two kinds of persuasion, one that's like religious conversion and then and, and, and that's very dramatic. And then the other that's like um, very goes very slowly and someone can save face and they never even notice they change their mind and it doesn't have to be publicly acknowledged and it's much gentler. And like from my point of view, the slower, gentler persuasion is really just not different in kind from the quick persuasion um, and the. It, it's quite often going to be the case that if you're nice about it, you can orchestrate and manipulate the views of other people much better than if you are kind of a jerk about it, right? So, you know, the people who can, I think often the most persuasive people can talk very nicely and kindly and gently and won't force people to face up to the change of mind because um, that's just going to be more effective, right? But what persuasion is, is... Um, being able to orchestrate changes of mind when, now let me add the important part, when you don't actually have knowledge yourself. So like if I wanted, you know, to prove to you that if you want to find the square that is the double area of a given square, what you have to do is take the diagonal of that square and that's going to be the side of your double square. I can do that and I don't need to be persuasive. Because I know I can do the proof. <laughs> um, I can prove it to you and I can teach you that that's where you get the double square, right? Persuasion happens in contexts where nobody really has knowledge, but one group of people wants to get another group of people to behave in a certain way, uh, in a way that's going to be more cooperative, right? And maybe better, maybe better for everyone according to the beliefs of one group. So, um, but I, I think that what we want is knowledge uh, and so the fluctuations in other people's opinions, from a philosophical point of view especially, are just not valuable. Like me being able to change your beliefs, if I could do that, if I had the magical art of persuasion, I think I wouldn't want to use it. The thing that philosophers would contrast persuasion with would be inquiry. And, you know, if we don't know the answer, I mean, if I don't know it well enough to teach it to you, then what I should be doing is inquiring with your help. That's what philosophers do. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know how to avoid a semantic argument here because I'm trying to figure out why this distinction between inquiry and persuasion must exist. So to take your Pythagorean example, you say that's not persuasion because you can just prove it to me. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's a form of persuasion, is it not? And even the very concept of proving it to me 
only works if there are certain axioms I accept or that I accept the very process of proof that you're putting out there. Um, I just wonder, you know, and you see the level of disagreement, for example, that occurs in a scientific context and then in how that multiplies when you introduce a scientific concept to a non-scientific audience. Uh, we're living through that right now. So um, is, is this distinction that you're drawing... Explain to me why it's a meaningful distinction rather than sort of an exercise in taxonomy. Well, I mean, it might... Um, I think taxonomy is often meaningful. <laughs> so um, right. I think that there's... Um, so there's this platonic dialogue called the Gorgias, where Gorgias is this orator, and he is showing off that he can persuade anyone of anything. And in fact... He, you know, he is better at persuading sick people to take their medicine than his brother, who's a doctor, right? He's like, look, I have the art of persuasion. And Socrates right. says to him, well, it seems like there's sort of two sorts of things you might talk about. The one is instilling knowledge in people and the other is instilling belief. Which one are you doing? And Gorgias like, I'm just doing the belief one because Socrates is like, that's what I thought. Because, I mean, you couldn't do the knowledge one so quickly and on so many different topics, Right. Um, and so I do think it's important, like, you know, suppose you're having a conversation about vaccination or something. What is your goal here? Like, is your goal to kind of get someone to take the vaccine, right, um, to bring it about that they end up taking the vaccine? And it might be that, like, changing their mind about the value of vaccination it doesn't even have to be a permanent change, right? As long as you change it long enough for them to get the vaccine, that that would be your goal, that you want them to think something because you want something to happen. And I do think that some um, kind of aims of speech are like that. They are sort of pragmatic. But another thing you might want to do is you look, you might personally have the knowledge relevant to knowing that this is the right thing to do. And then you might seek to convey that to that person. And that's teaching. And I think that in a way the, the question might, like I think many persuaders would even sort of admit in the way that Gorgias admits that they're in the business of, of instilling certain beliefs. But if, if what they're trying to do is teach, for instance, I mean, one upshot of that is that like if you have knowledge, you can teach it and teachers shouldn't blame their students for not following. The teachers should change their methods, right? So a lot more fault and blame lies on the side of the teacher if the teacher purports to have knowledge of the thing that they're teaching. This is incredibly interesting to me. I'm, I'm wondering, though, moving from Plato to Aristotle for just a moment, which was inevitable, mm -hmm. I'm wondering how this, is, how this is squared entirely with, for instance, the conditions in which Aristotle says that something like deliberative or practical judgment is required. So, so, so for instance, there are only certain things about which Aristotle says knowledge uh, is the correct category that needs to be sought. So, so you know, we don't, we don't deliberate, we don't argue about mathematical problems or about sci certain scientific questions. Uh, Aristotle also says that we don't deliberate over purely artistic 
issues. There instead is simply the imposition of the vision, the will of the artist upon the raw material. The raw material doesn't argue back. There's a particular scenario, which you may well not, Agnes, be saying is not necessarily a philosophical scenario, but I'm wondering, I guess, in some respects, how safe philosophy and politics can be set apart from one another, or at least moral philosophy and politics can be set uh, set apart from one another, when Aristotle says that really what deliberation is, what the process of practical reasoning, where that takes place, is where you really are trying to take particular, you're trying to give particular credence to or take with particular seriousness the realities of the life of a people or the realities of the life of a city. And you're trying to move them from a particular position of, it it might be a kind of a misformed emotional attachment. It might be certain degrees of, of selfishness or lustfulness or consumption or whatever, and moving them to some other form of, say, citizenly virtue. It's that, it's that process, which, again, you may well not be describing as a philosophical process, but, but that surely, that process of practical reasoning or of deliberative, uh, deliberative exchange, that's, that's getting us much closer, isn't it, to what we might mean by, say, democratic persuasion. So, uh, you know, I, I, I thought of, you brought up Arendt, and you said that what she's doing in her book is deliberation. And I don't think that's right. Um, uh, and, I, and I don't think Aristotle would call uh, but most philosophical activity deliberative mm. because deliberation is um, trying to decide what to do, right? And philosophers are not generally trying to decide what to do. <laughs> That's okay. not the object of their <laughs> thinking, right? Aaron says in her book, uh, what I propose, therefore, is very simple. It is nothing more than to think what we are doing. Yeah, right. That is, she wants to describe what we're doing, right? Um, but she's not in the business of She's in the business of trying to put words to something, let's say, right? And that there may be practical upshots of that, but it isn't, um, it doesn't push towards a, here is what we are to do. And I think deliberation, deliberation aims at action. And in the first instance, deliberation is first personal, right? I have to decide what am I going to do with my day? Um, and uh, it, deliberation takes a goal, an abstract goal, like I want to do something good, right? And then it winnows that goal down. Sorry, I'm just giving Aristotle's theory of deliberation here, okay? Sure. It gives, it takes the abstract goal, like uh, I, I want to do something good. And then I'm like, you know what? I want to do something good for my friend, right? Now I've made it more particular. I want to, I want to get her a present, okay? But I have to pick what present. Uh, okay, I want to get her um, a toy. She likes toys, right? Uh, and then, oh, here's a toy store. Now I go get it. But that's the way Aristotle understands deliberation. So you take something general, and you turn it into something particular. Now, in a political context, the problem is we have to deliberate together, right? Um, and so we need to have a general goal that we all share, right? And then we need to make that goal particular, but keep everyone on board the whole time, right? It's easy when you're by yourself to keep yourself on board the whole time. Um, but if you've ever tried to even just decide with a friend what movie to see, right? That can be hard. Um, so I think that you know, one function persuasion can have is to kind of nudge people um, to when when the goals are not exactly overlapping, right? So maybe that's the kind of persuasion that you're talking about. Like, how do we how do we keep everyone on board when we are trying to deliberate together about what to do? 
Because so, so a lot of the time, it seems to me that the way that the way that it actually works is that someone or some group of people think they know the answer to that question. Mm. Mm, it's this. It's just that you guys are not on board, and that's when persuasion comes in. So the persuasion is not part of the deliberation. The deliberation is completed, right? And then I need to like get you to go along with it. Um, well, and that's when I try to persuade. Except that in practice, you very often have multiple people with contradictory positions or conflicting positions that equally believe that they have the answer to this question and they need to persuade the other. So when you say deliberation isn't happening there, isn't that actually a process of deliberation where, okay, you're confident you have an answer, I'm confident I have an answer, now we discuss it to see whether or not our confidence is justified. And if we change our position on that question, then that's what we call persuasion. But that, that follows from an act of deliberate. Like, so in, the, in a democratic context, isn't that really what's happening all the time? Not necessarily between politicians who have, you know, performative and strategic reasons for their positions being fixed, but for the citizenry at the very least, or at least those who in America you would call independents and um, in Australia we would call swinging voters. I think that deliberation only works when the group works together, like a, like a department meeting, right? You can have the department deliberating about its future. But some groups don't want to deliberate together. Like maybe they don't like each other or their conceptions of the good diverge so much that they, they won't deliberate together. And it seems to me that argumentation, right, in which each side tries to persuade the other side that they're wrong, about the goodness of some project, but that's not the same thing as deliberation. Hmm. Sorry, can you explain um, that? I, why, why not? Um, because while I'm, I mean, it, it it actually could be if you if you did it in a particular way. Um, so while I'm, suppose I'm arguing with you. You know, we want to um, we want to do something with our evening. I think we should see a movie you think we should go out to a restaurant. And I'm, so now we are, you might say, well, we're deliberating together about what to do. But you also might say, well, what, what's happening is I'm trying to persuade you and you're trying to persuade me, right? Um, and I guess I think, you know, one thing that could be happening is like, I'm like, come hell or high water, I'm gonna, I, I want us to see this movie. And like, I'm gonna do everything I can to try to get you to see the movie. And I'm convinced that it's that seeing the movie is the way to go, right? And maybe I have the art of persuasion and I can get you to do that. But another thing that might be happening here is that through this conversation, the two of us are actually going to figure out what we should do, right? Yes. Um, and, but in that case, in that second case, right, then in effect, what I'm doing could, I think, shouldn't be described in that kind of unilateral persuasion way that I was trying to set out at the beginning. It's more like, persuade or be persuaded, right? Which is like how Socrates talks in the Crito. Um, so it may be that my project here is either to persuade you or to be persuaded by you, right? And I, I, I agree. I think, so I think, first of all, I think that can be philosophical. That is philosophical conversations can have that model, can have the persuade or be persuaded model. Um, but, and, and I think in a deliberative context, you can deliberate together if what if your goal is to persuade or be persuaded. Um, 
But I think that quite often the way people use the word and even the concept of persuasion is unilaterally, where in effect, if you are persuaded, then you have failed in the project. If your goal was persuade or be persuaded and you get persuaded, you haven't failed, right? But if your goal was persuade and you get persuaded, then you have failed. Um, like you said, you know, uh, or someone said earlier, like, like no one walks out onto a stage hoping they'll do badly so they can learn something. I think that's exactly what philosophers do when they give talks, right? They hope that someone is going to show them some big problem with their idea because this is their chance to learn that. And I think that if you are thinking about bilateral persuasion, that kind of has to be at least half of what you hope to go out onto that stage and learn something. That voice you have just heard belongs to Agnes Callard. She's an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Chicago. You're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Agnes, there's so much stuff there that I want to pick up. One, one is that if your description of what philosophers hope for when they give a talk is correct, then I would merely say they're not performing. Right? And that's the distinction I'm drawing, is that when one Fair performs... Enough. Yeah. But the other aspect of it, and maybe this is a thing I just missed, but we started down this road because you said we haven't asked ourselves the basic question, which is, is persuasion good? Is it a desirable thing? Can we return mm -hmm. to that? Because I'm not, I'm not sure if you've explained why it isn't a good thing. Like we've more, like more or less presumed it is, I think is what you were saying. Um, if, if it isn't, I'm still not clear on why it isn't, especially given the way you've just described it. Right. So maybe I'm going to distinguish two kinds of persuasion, right? Um, unilateral persuasion, which I think can be performative. It can have the character of performance where your goal is to get the other person to believe the thing that you believe. And mm -hmm. if that doesn't happen, you think you've failed. That's like your only goal. Right? Or I'm like, we're going to see this movie come hell or high water. That's unilateral persuasion. And bilateral persuasion, where your goal is to persuade or be persuaded. Right? So I think... Um, uh, bilateral persuasion is good and right. um, because it is sufficiently inquisitive to count as um, an inquiry into the truth or an inquiry into what we ought to do. And it's democratic, right? Yes. Um, it is. Um, I mean, there's different ways that you could think of something as being democratic, it's democratic in the good way and not in the bad way. Right? <laughs> okay, so sure. so Socrates, Socrates complained that the people in the Gorgias that he was talking to turned the conversation into a debate. He thinks of debates as being unphilosophical. And that's because what you have is two speakers, as you described, performing in front of an audience, right? And maybe what they're trying to do is to get more people to agree to their position than how many agree to the other guy, right? Yeah. So a debate is in a way of that kind is sort of majoritarian in that sense, democratic. Socrates thinks that's a bad kind of democracy. The good kind of democracy is when the person you're talking to is the person you're talking to, right? Um, your, so to speak, debate partner, who you're not debating in front of a crowd. Even if there is a crowd, you're not doing it performatively, but you're doing it in order to persuade them or be persuaded by them. Yeah. This, this, is, this is wonderful. And I actually think, I mean, what, what essentially, 
what you're essentially holding out, it seems to me, Agnes, and this is one of the many reasons we wanted to have you on the show, is it's uh, a philosophy, and this, it seems to me, is what you mean by inquiry. It's philosophy as a form of teleological discourse, but where that telos, that end, that goal, is not secured or known in advance of the form of discourse itself. And so that's why you get the sense, it seems to me, uh, throughout Plato's dialogues or throughout the Socratic dialogues, that Socrates is always engaging in a perpetual dynamic of double or nothing. The stakes get raised with every exchange. At, at, at every stage, the partners in deliberation or the partners in dialogue uh, have their own footing called into the most radical question. And the whole process becomes a means by which all participants move not from a position of uh, uh, one person being brought on to another person's side, but rather from a position of confusion to a position of clarity. And that position of confusion to clarity may well be on the part of Socrates himself. And in fact, Socrates' great virtue, his great goal, is that kind of endless process of self-scrutiny and of, and of uh, a humble acknowledgement of precisely what is, what is not known. I guess what it seems to me then is that if we think about persuasion as, as interested rhetoric, interested rhetoric in the sense of I'm trying to get you on my side, then there is something, obviously it probably pretend, it, it depends to some extent on maybe the side that is being, or the particular issue that's at stake, but there is something suspect in advance. Whereas a process of maybe we don't want to call it deliberation, maybe we don't want to call it a scene of persuasion, maybe we want to call it something like moral encounter, uh, following someone like Stanley Cavell, where the two people who are thrown into a particular encounter, there's no telling what process of transformation is going to take place as the result. And instead, what you have is one soul opening themselves up to interrogation at the hands of another. And that maybe is why something more like friendship or something like even we would want to call it democratic or political friendship. These are all, these are all essential characteristics of, um, of, of something like this particular scene of inquiry. Yeah, I think, though, that one thing that's really interesting about the Socratic dialogues is just how much, I don't know, kind of like hurt feelings and offense mm. and mm. Uh, people almost walking away and people actually walking away. Um, there is. Um, and a lot of these conversations, you can feel Socrates is hanging on by a thread, like the person's about to walk away at any moment, right? Um, and something that I think is really important to keep in mind about, um, you know, you could think of any human interaction as kind of like an attempt to coordinate, right? And so conversation is an attempt to coordinate in some way. And we are very, actually very eager to coordinate like I noticed in this conversation in between you guys, like you're very eager to say nice things to each other, right? And nice things to me. Like we're all trying to get along, right? And be nice to each other and have the sense that we're all friends. And that is a very, very deep in human beings that we are trying to get along. And we try to do that with our beliefs too. And, you know, when we say it's difficult to persuade people, it's like, well, there's this particular sticking points, but most of the time we you know, conform in a really profound way to the views of the people around us. There's no need for persuasion because we are all deeply conformist because our beliefs are 
a big part of the sort of mechanism of coordinating with other people. We so much want to coordinate with other people that we'll coordinate our beliefs with theirs just to feel like we get along with them, right? And part of what Socrates was trying to do is break that, right? And he does it by just deliberately disagreeing with the people that he's talking to. And he's saying to them something like, in a way, I'm not going to act the way you think a friend should act. I'm going to try not to coordinate with you unless we're coordinating around the truth. I'm refusing to coordinate with you around anything but the truth, right? And I think that that was something very radical. It's just as, you know, there's a way in which Socrates was very, was a great benefactor and was, was you know, very kind to the people around him. I think that's true. But there's a way in which what he did was withheld a certain kind of conventional friendship, in favor of the kind that refuses to get along on any terms other than the truth. Hmm. Um, some of these distinctions, so that I find that a fascinating distinction, except that even with that kind of person, how would I describe them? That they're so concerned about the truth that they simply will not, they won't shift their views simply to get along. Is that a fair description, mm -hmm. a summary of what you described? Yeah. Even that person will be doing all kinds of other things, most likely to get along, right? So, yeah, I'm absolutely. Not Socrates is punctiliously polite. Yes, for example. Or I will find other points of agreement, I mean, even on issues that are not sort of truth or, or, or error. Um, that might just be issues of preference or taste or something. So that I, I'll, I'll try to create a common bond so that I'm now in a position to differentiate myself from you on a particular issue and then perhaps persuade you that way. So it's very, it's powerful, I think, that distinction, but also it's a bit blurry. Similarly, I think the distinction you wanted to draw between, uh, I can't remember the words you used, so I'll just paraphrase, but that kind of domineering form of persuasion and that other form of persuasion. Unilateral? That, yeah, unilateral. And what was the other word you used? Persuade or be persuaded. Bilateral. Yeah, yeah. Bilateral. Yeah, there we go. Right, yes, which makes sense given the first one is unilateral. Anyway. <laughs> um, so I think uh, that, that distinction is interesting, right, because it's neat conceptually, but I'm not sure it's neat in practice. Like I, I, I know of times in my own life where I've probably gone into a conversation unilaterally and come out being persuaded. I didn't go in wanting to be, which is my own failing, but that's the fact of the matter. Um, and yet in spite of that, in spite of myself, I had to admit that the other person was right. Even if I didn't admit it to them, I would come out and say, actually, I got schooled there and I will now figure out the least embarrassing way to crab walk my way to that that new position. So I do, I love the distinctions you're drawing in that I think they are conceptually helpful, but from a perspective of understanding human behavior or maybe calibrating our attitudes towards something like persuasion or thinking about the importance of persuasion within our public culture and our, our democratic life, I wonder whether or not they become fuzzy enough that actually there's always a way forward, if you know what I mean. There's always a there's always, we shouldn't despair simply because we've begun in a unilateral place, for example. 
th- that seems completely right. And Socrates is talking to people, all of whom are in a unilateral mood, right? Um, so, so I, I, I don't want to say that um, you can't get somewhere good from the unilateral beginning. The question is just like, is that a good form of thought, right? And maybe can I give an example? I was just talking to a student of mine just before this about activism, and he, you know, he's like, I'm an activist. And is that compatible with being Socratic? Like, can you be a Socratic activist, right? Mm. Because, you know, as an activist, in effect, I want to persuade people of, you know, the evils of climate change. That's like really important to me. It's an important part of my life to do that. But as a Socratic, I'm supposed to be inquisitive. Um, And, you know, if I write a, a letter in protest at the universities not divesting from certain sources of fossil fuels, whatever, you know, am I am I in some sense betraying my Socratic nature? And uh, I thought it was such a wonderful question. And I think uh, I think you can be a Socratic activist. I think the thing that would mark the Socratic activist is that you would think of your interlocutor that if you give them a good argument, they'll be persuaded. So you would think, look, if I make the uni- a good argument to the university, they will divest. And that's the job. That's the reason I'm writing this. I'm writing it to persuade. And I think one, so one mark of what I see as bilateral persuasion is not necessarily that you conceive of yourself as aiming to be persuaded, because I agree that's kind of a weird thing to aim at, right? Of course you think you're right. It's that you conceive of your interlocutor and you as having an honest disagreement where you stand a chance of persuading them because they're going to listen to you. And if you make a good argument, they're going to change their mind. I think that's really the mark of bilateral persuasion. That's a very good way for us to wrap up. Um, it's unfortunate that we have to, Agnes, but we are out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> Agnes Cowart, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Chicago, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. And that'll do for us this week. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.